Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Nellie Thomas, who is an activist, an author, a comedian, and the host of the podcast, Dear Nellie. We spoke extremely broadly uh, about a number of subjects, as, as we like to do, ranging from dating to neurodivergence. So I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, if you'd like to support this podcast, patreon.com slash Alice Fraser is the place to go at the moment. We do two writers meetings a week and a salon. And if you are working on anything at the moment, if you're writing anything, please join us for the writers meeting at the moment you get uh, you get those for a dollar a month, you get access to everything for a dollar a month, um, which is an unsustainable business model, and I'll have to change it at some point. But for now, uh, if you're working on anything creative, and you want to do that with other people, patreon.com slash Alice Fraser is the place to do that. Also, I have a book at unbound.com. Alice Fraser, I have finished writing it, and it's just up to them to determine the publication schedule, unbound.com. If you type in Alice Fraser, you can get my book, The Dancy Lagarde Reader. That's it. I'll let you get on with listening to the podcast. And uh, remember, when I say supporting the podcast, that means supporting the people who helped me make it. Um, my editor, Ped Hunter, who has helped me so much basically since having a baby it became impossible for me to be the one the one stop shop that I was um and this lets me pay people to help me to produce this content so if you enjoy it patreon.com slash Alice Fraser uh you're having tea with Alice I'll talk to you again next week and welcome to the podcast you're having tea with Alice who are you and what are you drinking <laughs> well I'm drinking two things one I'm not drinking tea I, I don't drink tea and we can discuss that at length if you like Please I'm drinking tell me why you don't drink tea I'm drinking hibiscus tea of it's course you are <laughs> I am drinking coffee like a proper Melbourneian and I'm also drinking cordial to honour my West Australian bogan country roots. Cordial. Wow. I think cordial. it's been 20 years <laughs> since I drank cordial. Would you like to see? Oh, is it fancy cordial or is it like Cotty's cordial? Mate, look, how how deep do we want to go into, into the class crossover? It is as cordial. As deep as you want. But it is Bickford's cordial. So oh. I was going to go the Aldi cordial just to try and pretend that I'm still in that class. But the truth is I drink Bickford's. All right. For those listening, uh, Bickford's is the middle class cordial, I would say. <laughs> it sure is. You don't want to bring Bickford's cordial out where I'm from. Let's put it that way. Would, people would think that was too fancy. Oh, you've got ideas above your station, Nellie. <laughs> <laughs> the coffee would be all right why don't you drink tea I just don't like it I've just never liked it I tried you know when we went through that sort of there was a big push in if I recall correctly I place everything by prime ministers in Australia so I'm talking the Keating years so we're mm -hmm. talking the 90s there was a big push to start drinking tea with dinner for digestion. So I tried to get into, you know, green tea. I tried other herbal teas. I've tried chamomile tea for sleeping. I just don't like it. I mean, 
I'm not going to argue with you. Nobody's yeah. ever wrong. I'm uh, out. About what they don't <laughs> like or don't like. Um, Correct. But uh, that's a fascinating thing. I sort of think everything is tea if you think about it enough from the wrong perspective. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm drinking two teas, one cold, one warm, filled with milk <laughs> and coffee. <laughs> and what have you been wrestling with of late, Nellie Thomas? Oh, Alice, I have been wrestling with so many things as I am want to do that I have a list for you. I am choose your own adventure, Nellie, today. Another I list. Right. So my two favourite episodes of this fabulous podcast, one was with Deanne Smith and you were both talking about instinct um, and that fascinated me. The other one was with Nato Green, who I'm obsessed with, never met, but obsessed with. Um, and you're t- he was talking about parenting teens in post-pandemic, and this is a very live issue for me. But for me, for, for Nelly Topics, I'm like love and dating because I'm 49 and back in the dating pool, and that is a whole situation, Alice. Um, family of origin because we're coming up to Christmas and that's a very big you know, event. Um, and one of the other things that I thought may be of interest, I'm letting you choose. I've been thinking a lot because of the shit show that we are in, in the world at the moment, about a poem that I adore, which has a line that joy is an act of resistance. See, that's interesting. Um, all of those things are very interesting, but let's start <laughs> at the end and, and work our way backwards. Joy as an okay. act of resistance. Yeah because I have very mixed feelings about statements like that. Yes, I know. Um, I think, you know, so much of the narrative at the moment puts uh, the individual, makes the individual responsible for uh, social problems. And, for example, things like corporate wellness. Yes. um, making you responsible for your own mental health in the workplace is a way of, I think, uh, structures like corporations abdicating responsibility for the fact that what they do is inherently damaging to the human psyche. And then Mm. to make it somebody's individual problem Mm. to solve that um, Mm. troubles me. So I feel like in some ways the phrase joy is an act of resistance could slot into Into that that matrix. But for yes. you, why do, why do you find it a, a useful saying? Well, I think firstly I agree with you completely and one of the things as as a comedian who these days does mostly what we would call corporate events, and when I say corporate I mean not stand-up but, you know, conferences and the, the like, I'm often asked to speak at things like Are You Okay Day and, you know, various other kind of mental health um interventions and I couldn't agree more with what you're saying to be standing there at an event in fact I did one the other day with a bunch of uh welfare workers and inevitably they have a a wellness expert speaking to a bunch of people who are worked to the bone underpaid frankly exploited And, you know, the comedian and human in me is just screaming, yoga won't fix this. (laughs) So, like, there is, you cannot breathe this shit out, all right? They need a holiday. 
They need to be paid better. You need to restructure how you do it. The whole concept of welfare needs to be reconsidered. So I totally agree with you. At the same time, as loosely, you know, an older, I guess I am an older activist now, I think one of the things I've seen in various activist circles that I've been in is the relinquishing of joy and mm. how damaging that is to individuals, but even to a movement, right? So if you have, uh, there's a concept in activism called the refusal to win. So you can become so invested in your identity as a victim, for example, that even when you do have a win, you resist that win and you get more comfortable with being feeling awful, frankly. And I think that that on a, on a, on a pragmatic level is very damaging, but I also see very good people burnt out by that. Yeah, which is the flip side. I think you are absolutely right. I think there is something really unpleasant and moralistic about some, particularly online um, yeah. activism because of the ways in which online activist avatars are meant to be internally consistent yes. uh, in a way that if you're interacting with people in real life, you know that they're not internally consistent and that we have good days and bad days and days where you need mm. to feel happy and so on and so forth. But mm. if somebody's mm. persona online is of an activist, then mm. being seen to be frivolous or trivial or joyful mm. or silly is mm. seen as under undermining that, um, mm. pulling the sound out from beneath that activist persona and you see people scolding I think one of the good examples is you know why are you posting about this rather than about that or oh. this isn't the most important issue or yes you know how can you be laughing about this thing when there are children dying and yes. it's one of those things of <sighs> children are always dying somewhere yeah yeah Injustice yeah. is always happening somewhere mm. Mm. and it is not a betrayal of no. the need to address those mm. injustices, to feel mm. joy. And have you just noticed is my other, like there's a couple of things in that. I posted the other day as I want to do, I've worked a lot in respectful relationships, spaces and consent and and all of that kind of, you know, feminist areas and I did a, you know, silly critique, serious slash silly critique of the Beckham documentary. And someone posted basically, oh, my God, like, what are we, what are you bothering with this for? Because, you know, have you read the news? <laughs> like, in my mind, I'm just like, yeah, I do both. Yeah. You know, like, yes, I don't, I'm very comfortable with my knowledge of the world and issues. You know, I'm not cynical about institutions like the news. I think the news is important, but I do think it's a different thing from what it used to be. You know, for mm. example, the incentive now, it's very hard to keep a, a news channel alive because there's no funding for them. So they have to they mm. have to get views, mm. they have to get clicks, mm. they have to get attention, they have to get focus. So they have to see themselves mm. as, as a product. Mm. Um, in a way, that's always been a bit true. Yes, Journalists have always been trying to you know, make news that's exciting mm. Um, mm. and engaging so they can get paid. But it's, you know, it's very, very true now. 
Mm. And so you just have to factor that into what what they're saying and how they're saying it and how they're presenting it. And what they're not saying, yeah. Well, I always yeah. think this about sort of uh, your kind of Andrew Tates and your, your men's rights mm. activists and your Manosphere mm. guys. Mm. What are they, what they, what they're saying often has a grain of truth in it or a of fair course. bit of truth in it. Mm. Mm. It's just the, the proportion. Mm. It's just ha- how much they're focusing on this truth mm. rather than the context of, mm. in which that truth exists. You know, there are Absolutely. plenty of useless idiots in the world who happen to be women. Mm. And if, if all the women you seek out, if, if you approach women by yeah. being, um, I mean, in Andrew Tate's example, utterly obnoxious, he is mm. incredibly crude in his approach to women as far as his public approaches to women and how you see it. He's, he's very crude. He's very clumsy. He'll slide into someone's Instagram DMs and give them some sort of slightly mean compliment and hassle them. Mm. Uh, and so you're self-selecting for mm. people who have very low self-esteem, who are going to be suggestible, who are mm. going to try to please you. Mm. And so you're, you're filtering the world um, in the same way as, you know, how they do those um, email scams and they spell them mm. deliberately badly mm. and they do grammar mistakes and make it very obviously mm. a scam. That's not because they're stupid no or illiterate it is because Mm. they want anyone with critical faculties Mm. to be weeded out anyone who isn't desperate anyone who is is able to you know Mm. call on resources and go hey does this look right to you anyone who has that kind of community Mm. support is not who they want they're trying to weed you out and so i think it's a combination of of you know seeking out the gazelle on the savannah on their own you know, seeking out the the vulnerable and confirmation bias. But that's got to be such a depressing way to live. If if the only yeah. people you are attracting to yourself deliberately, mm. constantly, mm. the only people who you are allowing into your sphere are weak people who you can mm. dominate. Mm. You're never going to have any interesting interactions. You're never you're going to see the world mm. as full of fucking pushovers and marks and. Mm. Mm. That will be the world that you draw to yourself. And that will be true. He's not yeah. lying. Those no. are all the people he meets because those are the only yeah. people he meets are people that want to meet Andrew Tate. Yeah. You know? No, totally. But that is, and I've heard you discuss similar in relation to, I mean, I wouldn't put them necessarily in the same bag, but you Jordan Petersons and your Andrew Tates, et cetera. Um, when I engage with that kind of material, I really do, I think the thing that frustrates me is that there is an intellect there, which makes it even worse, you know, because, you know, like I am <laughs> my my own, um, I guess it would be ego, intellect, a combination of things is like, come, I'll debate you, like anytime, anywhere, let's go, right? <laughs> like yeah, there yeah. is a brain there, this can be engaged with. But I think the thing that really lands with me, and it's probably to do with my age and probably also being a parent, because in my younger activist days, I would have just gone toe to toe with a guy like that and we're both screaming at each other and who cares. These days, I what I see, and this is in no way for me to justify what they say, but I see sadness. I see a lack of 
emotional intelligence and insight into what is really going on here. And it's the same, it's a broader discussion about the news, it's activism, online stuff. I will say, having been in those sort of activist spaces from the early 90s, that stuff was all there before the internet. That was all there. It just didn't have the same reach, but you still had refusal to win. You still had people who were clearly having, um, working out their own internal emotional struggle via causes. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll put my hand up (laughs) to say that I also did that, hopefully for good, hopefully, but I of the beholder, um, that was all there. It's just writ large now, you know, it's, it's the same dynamic. And can I just say, which I think is perhaps relevant in this case, it's very interesting for me as someone like I've dated both men and women or all the genders, however many genders we would like to identify. So that's a really interesting space to be in, in terms of discussions about how gendered relationships are, how people relate to each other, power imbalances, um, family violence, like a whole range of discussions that are much more nuanced. I think when you have experience across the board. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like I'm like dating full time. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, high demand, Alice. Don't need to date full time (laughs) to have experience. I think, um, oh, I I have so many thoughts that are kind of sparking out of this uh, and it it is fascinating. One of the things, we'll start with one of the things, which is the idea that debating is a good way to resolve an issue, Mm. which Mm. you see a lot of in in these Mm. kind of spheres. And it's such Mm. an appealing idea. It is. You sit down and then someone can win. And then that's... Yes. But... Actually, being good at debating mm. doesn't make your argument right. <laughs> it also doesn't always work because I think if you sense, like I've certainly been in this situation, again, I mean, I joke about it, but I come from a background of, you know, I was the first person to finish high school, go to uni, all that kind of stuff. So I did not grow up in a house with books and ideas and debates. And I had to learn as a young person, once I had the opportunity to go to uni, how much cultural capital I had when I would bring that um, education to debates. Now, I will say, Alice, I was often right. Okay, we're talking like the Hanson years, we're talking the rise of the far right, we're talking a whole range of things that were happening. And I would go in guns blazing very clever, able to debate, confident speaker. And then there was a point at which I realised, oh, this is kind of a form of bullying. You know, I'm talking to somebody, obviously I won't name names, but there's various people that I would be interacting with at that time who literally had an education up to, say, year seven, year eight level. Of course I was winning. Now, that doesn't mean that I was right, although I was, it means that I'm better at that. Yeah. Right? And you have to be conscious of that if you believe in justice. Yes. One of the things I'm very conscious of at the moment, because I'm sort of subject to my hormones in a way that yes. is, you know, un- unusual, I'm pregnant yes. at the moment, um, is I'm much worse at arguing because I will start to cry. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And that is not part of my personality. Yeah. It's not a thing that I have yeah. effective tools for dealing with. Yeah. I 
am just bad at arguing at the moment. That yeah. doesn't make me more or less right in any argument. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I say more or less right because sometimes crying is a way to win an argument. Um, Correct. But I don't want to win or an to argument by crying <laughs> or to end it. And so like the, this stuff is so fascinating to me because this is partly what Tea with Alice is about is because mm. I think conversation over yeah. tea and tea yeah. is a concept rather than yes. the actual drink. Yeah, literal, um, yeah. Le leisurely conversation in an environment of goodwill mm. is a far more effective way oh, of great. getting anywhere. Yeah. Connection is always better. Connection in regardless of the situation is better. I will say though, isn't it weird? I've got the I've got NATO in my head. I've never met NATO, but I'm a big fan and I know that he's been on and I'm like feel a sort of kinship with this sort of activist part of his life that I've also I should, done. I should so hook I you guys like, up. I know, I feel lovely. like I'm talking to him. What I would say though, if we circle back to the idea of debating, and I couldn't agree more at this age, right? Because if you go in guns blazing every single argument, Nellie doesn't get invited to Christmas anymore, right? I get I get <laughs> it, right? Having said that, as a public figure, someone like an Andrew Tate, I actually would do that, not for him and not to progress the argument even, but because I am so aware of the amount, particularly in his case, of victim survivors of um, all kinds of abuse, but particularly sexual abuse and sexual assault, I'm aware that it is often helpful for them to hear someone challenge that and particularly for them to hear a woman challenge that and say, absolutely not. This is not complicated. You are wrong. Yes. There is no middle ground on some of these things. You just have to take a stand. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why Andrew Tate is in my head. I, I listened to a podcast the other day, I think, and yeah. it's, it's stuck, it's <laughs> but stuck in my Mary, head. You would have had the same thing. I've had that. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was asked to go. I wrote a piece for, I think it was either The Guardian or New Matilda some years ago. Anyway, it was about left-wing men and misogyny and me talking about how difficult that as a concept had been for me in my personal and professional life to deal with because, quite frankly, you expect more of them. You know, they know better, they should do better. Um, and yet the reality is that often it can be harder, in my experience, to call those men out on their sexism because they are so invested in their identity of being progressive. So if you do call them out on you didn't load the dishwasher, then we're crying. If I go, and I'm obviously I'm being shorthand, if I go back to the guys I grew up with who are very blue-collar, rural, West Australian, if you said to them, dickhead, you didn't load the dishwasher, you go, oh, fuck, no worries. All right, so yeah. now that doesn't mean that he's going to load the dishwasher, but we're not in an existential crisis. Well, the criticism doesn't. So this is another argument that I kind of keep coming back to. It's a, an essay by a guy called Paul Graham. Um, and, you know, obviously I don't agree with everything that he says, but this essay is, is it's called, I think, Keeping Your Identity Small. Mm. Um, and it's mm. basically the argument for it is that when somebody critiques something and it's it goes to the core of who you are mm. so you're not saying you didn't load the dishwasher 
Mm. You're saying you're not a good feminist. Correct. And he says, I am a feminist. Yes. Feminist is part of who I am. And so you're attacking yes. this core identity. It becomes such a bigger fucking deal. Absolutely. When actually the thing that needs to be done is the dishwasher needs to be loaded. I don't exactly. need to. You know. Exactly. And if we extrapolate out, I had um, several incidents in my career, whether they be, you know, radio producers, but even other stand-ups. Um, I, the way that I look at it, I don't throw an elbow lightly. Like I will not go into conflict. Um, I'm not someone who likes conflict. I was raised in an environment where conflict was frightening. Um, as I've heard you discuss before, not physically frightening, but emotionally frightening. So I don't go into it willingly, but if Mm. I feel there's a justice issue, I will. And there's been a couple of examples, one in particular, Um, with a couple of very progressive male comedians, of course, who I won't name, who I sort of pulled up on the fact that they didn't have a lot of women in their lineup, right? So I was usually the only woman on the bill. There may have been one other every now and then. Honestly, Alice, the tragedy of it, you know, (laughs) like again, if I if I thought, if I think of another room that's sort of less progressive and just like, you know, shits and giggles and cock and bong and whatever, I reckon if I pulled them up, there might be a fight about it, but it wouldn't be so personal. Yeah. Whereas that idea of having to go in gently, gently, trying to manage everyone's feelings, you know, that in itself being gendered, but kind of going, I, I need to call you out on this. And yeah. I get it. It's hard being called out. I've been called out. But to take that so personally, it's a really interesting experience of a lack of EQ, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also, you know, these ideas that we have about ourselves are so yes. Yes. fundamental to the way that we operate in the world. So for me, I think the most kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't know what the word is, the most upsetting critique is that I've been selfish or that I've been blind to somebody else's hurt. Um mm or to their needs or to the ways in which I might have hurt them. Or so like if somebody says that to me or that, that I, yeah, just that I was selfish and I know I am selfish in various ways. We, of course we all are. We all have blind spots. We all have things that we take for granted and we all have ways in which we will take the people around us for granted. Um, mm. But that's the one that like, it's a knife to the heart. I find it yes. very hard to take. Yes. And, you know, you have to use all of your self-management strategies in yes. order not yes. to just be the absolute like, you know and then you're in reactivity and I mean I to me I think and again it's funny that just made me think of dating because I can can't tell you the lack of self-awareness is wild like even at my age like just that idea of someone kind of going I'm very patient right and then you go in the car for them with them for the first time and go fucking hell (laughs) girl the last thing you are is patient but that's how they see themselves, right? So it's yeah, this and, process. And they probably are patient in many contexts. Yes, um, yes. Or deluded, Alice. We have to leave some room. I know someone who thinks of themselves as a worker and is like, well, I'm not the kind of person who will stand by and let somebody else build a bridge. I have to muck in. That's their self-identity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It does not go for watching other people cook them dinner, for example. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Can be very, I'm I'm an empath. 
are you though? Because you've just talked at me for an hour. (laughs) Empath is a different one. Uh, I think that's also a very interesting one when it comes to uh, neurodivergent people um, and the crossover between people who think of themselves as uh, empaths and people who are on the autism spectrum, for example, because autistic people, as far as, you know, high functioning autistic people who I know are very good at predicting how uh, another autistic person might feel in their circumstances, which is empathy. And I think a lot of empathy is just imagining how you would feel if you were the other person. And having, that's a really interesting one. So I think you are aware I have an autistic daughter um, and indeed I wrote a book for kids about autism and neurodiversity and that is one of my biggest bugbears in, in terms of the stereotypes about particularly autism, ADHD as well, some other neurodivergence, this idea that it's a lack of empathy. So you have a, in in the ether, I think there is still a stereotype of a male autistic engineer who um, is in his 40s or 50s, likes trains and ha- can't read the room. Mm-hmm. Whereas the reality for a lot, particularly autistic girls, but a lot of autistic people in general, is that that the anxiety that often comes with autism, there's a level of hypervigilance there that can make you not just empathetic, arguably too empathetic. So it's what we call, you know, in therapy speakers like co-regulation. So if mum is a little bit, little bit tired or mum is a little bit stressed, or maybe mum's a little bit sad or whatever, that she's so attuned to that, that then we can spiral. And of course, the job of the parent is to try and contain. I manage that most of the time, not all of the time. But the lack of empathy, it's actually, I don't even know if this is a concept, but in my experience with my kid, at least, it's hyper empathy, not a lack of empathy. Yeah, certainly some of uh, some of the friends that I have who are autistic uh, suggest that it's it's overload rather than yeah, correct. in the same way as as uh, ADHD can be mm. hyperfocus. Yes, um, autism can be too much too much input of data and an ability in, in, an inability to prioritize um, that data, which is big feelings. To say, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's the, the prioritization of the data mm. happens for most people by instinct. You ignore 90% mm. of all the inputs you mm. get because they're not important. Mm. Um, or you assume they're not important from yes. habit or yes. from whatever. Um, yeah. But having to do that data sorting in every instance all of the time is mm. ex- is too much. It's, it, it's overloading. Yeah, yeah. The emotions are, um, and I can, again, I can't speak for obviously there's such a range of autistic experiences, but I just think it's important to counter that sort of stereotype of being emotionless. I think in the majority of cases, if you come across someone who appears to be emotionless, it is because they are in overwhelm and shut down from so much emotion. That's not always the case. There are absolutely, I have also met a number of autistic men in particular um, who don't have that depth of emotional experience. Is it because they're autistic? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I'd need to know more about them. 
but it's certainly not um it's it's not a given is what i'm saying in in either case yeah i mean so you date a fair bit and you talk about dating <laughs> oh i love that you see you say things with such exquisite um nonchalance <laughs> Well, I mean, you have a podcast that is about dating. I know, so I, I know. No, you're um, adorable. Yeah. This might be just a complete tangent, but yeah. how much do you feel like there are people who just get addicted to first dates because Oof. they get to be their best self and they get to pull out the yeah, hits yeah. Yeah. and they never have to actually deal with the reality of fully engaging with another person and the ways in which you then reveal yourself. Like yeah. part of what I, I, I like about all relationships and not just romantic relationships is that ideally they help you realize what a piece of shit you are and the ways in which you can be less of a piece (laughs) of shit you know like you feel safe enough to be your full self with them and repair some of the ways in which you are falling short Um, speaking of empathy i can't tell you how much it physically hurts me to hear you describe yourself as a piece of shit but we will come back to that um well you know i'm being i'm being i mean we all are in some ways we've all got these these bits of ourselves that are like oh man i'd rather not i'd rather not look at that part of myself that is very (laughs) different to being a piece of shit but i think the way that you inhabit the world is glorious but we'll come back to that because i know you're uncomfortable with compliments um (laughs) I think in terms of it's that's a fascinating question because the the short answer is that I am both of the things that you've said. So my oldest friend who I grew up with in that little town, I have known since I was three years old. I live in Melbourne. She lives in London. We are still best friends. So we've been friends for, what, 46 years. Mm-hmm. Um, my longest term relationship was 21 years. I have friends from school. I like, I love the, what long-term relationships reveal about yourself, the connection, the shorthand, you know, of being able to sit with that friend, for example, and not have to explain family background or the various incarnations of me or, or her. And also that safety to get that critique of whatever it is without it going to the heart of you because they know the heart of you you know the critique doesn't mean they think you're awful or a bad feminist or whatever it happens to be it's just about the dishwasher well and you can't bullshit them yeah you know I mean when you come in with your oh this is what I was doing Mm, you know I mean she can literally give me a look of like is it (laughs) you know and then I'm ah I've got enough insight to know that that's not indeed what I was doing. Having said that, I am, and it might be by circumstance because I have, you know, two kids with disabilities. A lot of my life is as a carer and a lot of it also, even in our work, we're very isolated. So I'm on my own a lot without adults. So I pre- the reason I say that is because I was about to say I'm a very much an extrovert, but I think I'm an extrovert probably by nature, but also by circumstance. So if I am in a dating situation, I'm fucking thrilled, Alice. I don't care what happens. There's another adult in front of me having conversation. Even if it's a shit show, and many of them have been, I'm like, I'm out of the house. I'm chatting to someone. This is fascinating. I can talk to someone about it on a podcast. Like, I mean, I'm not. I'm actually very Let me find out the ways in which you're boring. (laughs) 
exactly. Even if I want to tunnel out with a spoon, I still think to myself, this is fascinating. Like I went on a date with a woman some time ago. I won't place it in time, as you would say. Um, and she monologued at me. I swear to God, for about two and a half hours. She was a life coach, which I find hilarious. And I, there was part of my brain going, just leave, right? This is rude. Just leave. Like after about, and the other part of my brain is like, this is fascinating. How long can you go for? <laughs> like, will uh, yeah. there be a question? I have a few, yeah, I have a few people in my life who I will sort of sentimental timer just to see. Yeah. <laughs> how long that'll go. I was watching uh, my toddler interact the other day. And that's a really fascinating way to see how yeah. because conversation is a learned thing. We forget yes. that it's a skill. Yes. It's not yes. people aren't inherently good conversationalists. They learn yes. and may, they might have qualities and traits that lead them to become good con yeah. conversationalists later in life. But it's not a natural mm. thing. Mm. Conversations with toddlers are just a series of interchanged declarative statements yeah like yeah. i've got a pink scooter yeah this is spider-man you know like yeah. it's it's just what's up with pears yeah yeah no, yeah totally and there's no there's no i think there's there's no questions i think is what's really interesting but that's a very long way of saying i listening. think there is Yes, that's an interesting question. I mean, in that particular case, how would I know? Because I didn't speak. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> well, I mean, in this in the toddler interaction, I mean, they're in listening. In the toddler then, interaction. Then on the way back home, I get the I get the whole spiel about the scooter. Yes. You know, like I. Yes. There is an inter It's just the um. The I guess symbolic representation of. Yeah. Oh yes, that's interesting. Wow, yeah. a pink scooter, yes. you say? You know, yes. all of that is just frills. Yes. What happens is the thing has been said. I have this piece of information now. Yeah. There needs to be no acknowledgement. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's obviously developmentally that's completely appropriate. Like my kids are now 11 and 16. And so if they start monologuing at me about a TikTok or YouTube or whatever, <laughs> like which happens frequently, which is fine. I will give them, you know, a certain amount of time before I kind of go, um, my time now, or can you ask me a question or can I ask you a question about that for this exact reason? Because it's not for everyone innate. There does need to be a let. And I wish many of the people I'd been on dates with had had me as a mother, Alice. You can <laughs> get as eatable as you want about that. I mean that is that is a problem. That is a problem in dates that a lot of people are oh. looking for their mother. Can you imagine? I mean, I have like big mum energy. So I have had this frequently and I have to be speaking of owning your own shit, I have to be really conscious of that in terms of picking it up because I am comfortable caring for others. That is the space that I'm comfortable in for a range of reasons about how I was raised. I'm comfortable being a people pleaser. I'm comfortable therapizing, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I'm really consciously at this age and at this stage of my dating fucking journey, whatever we want to call it, of, of picking that up really quickly and not doing it. Because what it leads to 
is uh, an imbalance for both of you. It's not hot for a start. Like let's just Uh on the base level, it's not hot, but it also leads to resentment. You know, if you are giving and not receiving. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Or it can definitely. I think it's, it is also a position of power. Yeah, it can be. Yeah. It's both powerful and disempowering at the same time. Yeah. It's a tricky, it's a tricky combination. Being the person who gives the gift is yes uh, it's a really powerful position yes and at the same time yeah you're pouring out and you're not getting anything yeah in return that oh and i'm getting something out of it right i'm getting something out of it or i wouldn't have been doing it for 49 years like i get it (laughs) but it's about that consciously going that is not like i need reciprocity i don't believe there is true equality as in a 50-50 kind of nirvana in in any couple that I've either been part of or seen but as long as it's close enough right that reciprocity needs to be there just going back to that idea of getting addicted to the newness I reckon that's a real danger like particularly if anyone is listening and they're of my similar vintage there's a lot of people got divorced in COVID I'm one of them right um going back into dating and having, quite frankly, having attention and someone think that you're cute even, let alone interesting or fascinating or any of the things that happen when you're in that limerence phase is completely addictive. And I reckon enjoy it, but re- get a group chat going, right? <laughs> you, need, you need to check in with someone who's not in that because the hormonal state that you're in now in pregnancy, I would say it's comparable to that where you kind of go, oh, I, something's happening and I'm like, don't sell your house, don't move into state, don't give, you know, don't introduce your kids three days later because you've got the bloody fanny flutters and someone finds you fascinating, <laughs> right? You have to kind of, like we're not 20, you know? It is addictive. It's really nice if you've been in a long-term relationship and even good long-term relationships, and I would say that mine was mostly good, um, you don't have what I would call fresh eyes, right? You're not looking at each other with that kind of, oh, my Lord, look at you. You start to get that after a drought, (laughs) you can lose your mind and it can become You can also then misread if you're like three months down the track and why aren't we looking at each other like that anymore? That doesn't mean discard. Mm. That means reflect on where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is a fascinating thing. I think people and the way that we engage with each other and the ways in which you can kind of, I think for creative people, you Mm. can get that kind of excitement and connection and drive Mm. and it is a it is an interesting fact I'm, I'm I'm still trying to figure this out I used to have a kind of a half-baked theory and not a very PC theory either mm. um that I I think there's there's relatively few straight single couple collaborators who aren't cu- who mm. aren't a couple Mm. Um, mm. just friends mm. who are collaborative yeah. co- collaborators because the spark of creative energy, the spark of creating something together 
is so thrilling and exciting <laughs> that it can very easily be mistaken for lust. And it is way easier yeah. to bang than it is to write a sitcom. I will not confirm nor deny if I've ever had an entanglement with another comedian. I will not go there, Alice <laughs> Fraser. <laughs> but I will say, don't shoot where you eat. Learned that the hard way. Um, yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I think there can be particularly, I think I, I discussed this with you off air, one of the things I'm really trying to do differently, and when I say differently, I mean now right? So I've been mm. dating for a few years. I'm talking like now at, I'm turning 50. I've noticed going back into dating. So I hadn't been on a date since what, 1999. And, you know, this is like pre-apps, all the rest of it. I was in a 21 year relationship. When I started dating again, the thing that I noticed, and this might be a creative thing, it might be a personality thing. Someone who's good with their words is like, I'm, I'm like gone. You know, like if there's good bants and there is that frisson that is intellectual connection, I'm like, oh, you know, I don't care what you look like. I don't care how much money you've got. Unfortunately, I also have at times not cared how they treated me. <laughs> so I'm very much trying to. As long as they can explain their way out of it beautifully. Yeah, you know, write me a poem. <laughs> send me a nice text have a nice conversation I'm really deliberately and this is kind of unwiring myself in real time literally kind of going I'll tell you the story if we've got time so after you and I both went to beautiful Carl Wilson's funeral and I at that point had decided like I'm kind of done like I can't you get exhausted with dating right? It, it, it's both lovely and also exhausting. And I have a lot of responsibilities at home. And then you're like, can I even date if I've only got, you know, really a night a week and I have these caring, you know, blah, 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 I'm too old, all the rest of it. And when I spoke at Cal's memorial, the thing that she meant most to me, I'm going to try and do this without getting teary, but she, I've experienced a lot of shame in my life. And she was really proud of me. And I think doing the eulogy and saying that out loud, like I'd thought it before and she'd said it to me before, but saying it out loud, it, it unlocked something where I kind of went, that is not my shame. That is nothing to do with me. And even though I knew that intellectually, as most clever people do, I felt it. And I immediately went home and went, all right, you're going back in. And I went on the apps and I made myself a profile. Just side note, someone then messaged me saying someone's impersonating you on this app. And I'm like, actually, no, it it's me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am, in fact, desperate and dateless. Um, but my criteria going into that this time, when that's what, a couple of months ago, was completely different. I was like, I am only going to look at actions, no matter how good or not good um, someone that I match with or go on a date with, no matter what their words are. I mean, not completely. I mean, if they start saying I'm a Trump supporter, you know, like there's a limit, but that's not the defining thing. What did they do? And it's working, Alice. Uh, 
I'm very pleased to say. It is fighting, and this is where why I said to you um, that instinct discussion is really interesting because I think my instinct, what I think of as instinct is, oh, no, 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 well, then it's not there if I'm not feeling that. Like if I'm not feeling that kind of, like over, that's not instinct, it's conditioning, right? That is conditioning from me from my childhood going win them over. They have to love you. They can't leave you. That's not my instinct at all. So I'm trying to rewrite, literally rewire my brain and go, no, what are they doing? Not what are they saying? I'm so glad that that is working for you. I I think that's a lovely note to bring this up. Like I've lost my mind. (laughs) No, I'm not. That this is like I am. I I was actually what I was thinking of is this brings us kind of full circle to joy as an act of resistance. Yes. Yes, exactly right. So the same thing. I thought I sat there and I thought my beautiful friend you know, and I had the privilege of being in ICU and all of that kind of stuff with her and looking at her husband and her son and just, you know, I mean, this is terribly maudlin, but it's true. Like That could be any of us at any time. This could be me tomorrow. What are you waiting for? Would Cal want you to be sitting at home going, I'm done, I can't, I'm not lovable. You know, I'm not, I, I can't do Of course she wouldn't. And there's part of me, I mean, I'm a hardcore atheist, Alice, but honestly, like there's part of me of like this current dating situation I'm in, which is so different to anything I've been in before. I'm like, did you bring this person to me, Cal? And it kind of doesn't matter if it's true or not. It's like, it's an indication of where, where I am mentally, I think, and emotionally. Yes. Yeah, the ways in which people leave marks on us or leave shadows in us and the way yeah. that those then lead us to the next thing, I think, is is yeah. as close as I get to the feeling of an afterlife, the impact and the kind of the ripple effects that go on. Yeah, I think about this yeah. when I think about activism and well-meaning mm-hmm. people and the ways in which systems almost always mm-hmm. become corrupted. And oppressive, and- yes oppressive Mm. and so when you come back to joy as an act of resistance I do think that at the core of it no matter what you're doing no matter how important it is I know a lot of people who work in NGOs who are assholes yeah I think it is incumbent on anyone who's trying to do good work in the world in a broad sense in a grand sense in a making a big difference to not mm. be an asshole correct we have this narrative this great man narrative these kind of mm. theories of of um you know rationality that mean mm. only only the impact is important or only the profits are mm. important or only mm. only the genius is important mm. um or only the movement is important mm. But actually, in a concrete sense, the thing that we have control over Mm. is the way we treat ourselves and the way we treat other people. Oh, I I could not agree more. And I think it is an example of that is 
how much more devastating it is, how much more devastating lateral violence is in minority groups um, compared to externalised violence. So the late, great Stella Young was also a great friend of mine. It's the ninth anniversary of her, her death this week. And her and I talked about this a lot, where even within a community that is so kind of, I think, mythologised as the disability community and patronised, frankly, the idea that there are not assholes with disabilities and that there are not activist assholes with disabilities is a denial of their humanity. It is also incorrect. It is Bigotry also Bigotry of low expectations. The, the, the pain that people within that community, and it's same in the queer community, same in feminist groups, it's all, all sorts of, um, you know, oppressed groups or whatever we want to call them. The pain inflicted on each other is, again, at this age, and it might be a motherly instinct, that upsets me so much more um, than an Andrew Tate because the effect of it on each other, we disable each other, pardon the ableist language, we actually are doing their work for them. And that is the reason that I love coming back to that idea of joy as an act of resistance. If there's a group of people, there's an active group of homophobes, for example, well, fuck you, I'm going to sit on that bloody bike with the duck on the bike at Mardi Gras and have a great time. Now, does that change the world? No, but it's good. No, and also when you think about Cal's funeral and you think yeah. about all the stories that all the people told and all the yes. people who came up on social media and said, mm. when I was up and coming, her words mm. of support and joy mm. made the difference between whether I gave up me. or not. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. those things, the ways in which we support each other and share joy mm. are powerful. You know, mm. it's, you know, again, this is a, a narrative that we have that like serious art is, is, is mm. miserable art, but yeah. actually, yeah, these, these, the being supportive of each other, being, sharing joy, I think is a, a wonderful thing. You know, yeah. like what, what I, I think in some ways back to when I was more naive, I think the first time a friend came out to me as trans before I knew what transness was, I had, I, this was like, mm. I would have been maybe 19 or 20. Mm. Mm. Um, and my first thought was, that's really cool to be able to experience the world in both mm. in both forms. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. I was thinking from like a fantasy sci-fi yes. point of view. Yes. Yes. And, and th that, and of course it's much more complicated than that. And it's much more miserable yeah, than that. Course. There's so yeah. many politics about it, but I kind of yeah. think I was right a little bit. No, in that you moment. are 100% right. You are 100%. Yeah. That's part of the story too. It's like, yes, cool. <laughs> wow. Yes. yes, that is part of the story. And there is something absolutely joyful about being um, part of a group that's us and them. There's something joyful about like that does bring you closer together. And 
more than that, I do genuinely believe there's an issue of um, sustaining activism, right? Like so many people become conservative as they get older. And some of that is just that they burn out and that they're tired and that we'd look, I mean, you just look at the news now and you go, what the fuck can I do about anything? To me, that is them, whoever your them is, winning. Or because no solution is perfect. No solution is perfect and it's not And so linear. you can become completely disillusioned because yeah. every every solution is causing more problems. Mm. Uh, mm. Every solution is imperfect. Anything you try to do will have some bad effects. Mm. And that can yes. be heartbreaking if... Yes you don't go in knowing that. Yes. And I think going back to what you said, you know, about how, I mean, it's become almost cliched now, the Maya Angelou quote, but it is true. Like people remember how they felt around you. And even someone that I disagree with, even someone that I'm going head to head with, I do not want them to feel unsafe around me. I remember, so I did a gig at Festival Club for Comedy Festival. And when I was doing stand-up, like I don't invite heckling. I'm not, I mean, I can handle it, but it's not something, you know, it's not, doesn't suit my style at all. Um, and long story short, I went out, it was Friday night, it was midnight, there'd been footy on, a young guy, when I walked out, made some sexual innuendo. And I was standing there and there's what, five, 600 people. And I thought, literally my brain split in two. It's like, he's a kid. I also can't let this go. I can't let a woman, I think I was the only woman on, I can't walk out on here and not address this. And I destroyed him, Alice, like destroyed him. And you know, you've been in these environments. It was like a late and live kind of vibe. The crowd, it was like I was in, I was like past the conch piggy, you know, like I was in Lord of the Flies. I could have gotten the audience to hurt this guy. That's mm -hmm. how powerful it felt. And I walked off on stage and the comedians are high-fiving me and for weeks after for the festival, oh, my God, I heard about that spot you did at the da-da-da. And I was so sad. I never did Festival Club again. I never did it because I did not like what I did to that boy, even though he said a horrendous thing to me. It is not how I want to exist in the world. I didn't like it. I didn't like the power of it. I didn't like how he would have felt after. It was horrible. And I often remember that. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to know, notice when we have power. Yeah. Because I think, yeah, if you tell yourself a story where you never have power, you miss, you have a blind spot as to when you're executing it. And what we do with that power and how people respond to it. You know, there were international comedians on that lineup, for example, who probably wouldn't have looked at me twice otherwise, who were yeah. like, oh, my God, you are like, you know, it's fucking Xenia, Xena Warrior Princess has just entered the bill. Like the fact that how they responded to it also upset me. I'm like, I've got this beautiful show that I've crafted that's an hour long that I'm doing in the Melbourne Town Hall. You won't come to that, you know, and nor do you have to. But the fact that that got that response that it did, I didn't like it. 
Well, and that's what makes you such a good person to talk to, Nelly. Uh, where can people find you online? Where can they support your work? Oh, where can? Oh, I wasn't expecting this. Um, I should be. So I have a website, NellyThomas.com. That's pretty easy. Um, probably the biggest thing I'm doing at the moment is my podcast that you just featured on and did a fabulous episode. It's called Dear Nelly, and it is about sex, dating, and relationships. Um, and from a slightly older lens. So when I became single, all the podcasts and stuff I was listening to were people dating in their 20s. It's a completely different scenario. I think when you've got kids and wounds and assets and all the things that come with age. Um, Yeah, but just go to my website and my kids' books if you're interested, you know. I don't know, Alice, all the stuff. Laser Fraser is obsessed with the Brains book. Oh, are you? Yeah. She loves it. So that's a, that's a oh, review Oh, your Fraser. You. I thought you were talking yes. about you. No, Laser Fraser. It's, the, it's my, my baby's online name. Yes, fabulous. Thank you so much for having tea with me, Nellie. Oh, you're so welcome. And um, I started talking about joy. I don't feel like I brought a lot of joy to this discussion. You brought me joy. <laughs> well, that's all I needed to do. In the reality, you know, I, I, this is my favorite kind of conversation to have. So yeah, thank me you for too. having it with me. Me too. Thank you so much. Oh, do you know her or do you not? This dolphin mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name. And she helps the dolphins at every frame. Lousy rifle doll. Lousy.